We've given up authority to central bodies of so-called experts, all of whom have agendas. The entire process is bought and paid for. If we don't take back our authority as physicians, it's all over. Today, I sit down with Dr. Richard Amerling, who has worked as a nephrologist for over 30 years and volunteered at NYU Bellevue during the first wave of the pandemic. He is a board member and past president of the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons. There's massive overprescribing. The model that we have adopted now is to not reverse the disease, but to rather treat those diseases with pharmaceutical products. Dr. Amerling is a founding member and chief academic officer of the Wellness Company. The current system is so corrupt, we have to start from scratch and build something alongside as an alternative. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kellek. Dr. Richard Amerling, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. Pleasure to be with you, Jan. Thank you so much for the invitation. Dr. Amerling, for, before we start, I want to get your reaction to this news, or at least popularized news recently that... Uh, Pfizer admits that it did not test for transmissions with their genetic vaccine. The Pfizer COVID vaccine tested on stopping the transmission of the virus before it entered the market. If not, please say it clearly. If yes, are you willing to share the data with this committee? And I really want a straight answer, yes or no, and I'm looking forward to it. Thank you very much. Um, regarding the question around, um, did we know about stopping immunization before um, it entered the market? No. Uh, these, um, you know, we had to really move at the speed of science to really understand what is taking place in the market. And from that point of view, we had to do everything at risk. What's your reaction? We've known this from the beginning. From the first day that study was published, we knew that it was very limited in the conclusions they drew. The efficacy numbers that they came up with were also kind of fake because they were relative risk reduction type numbers as opposed to absolute risk reduction, which was on the order of 0.7%, not 95%. So we knew from the beginning that the study was problematic, and that's why I had was suspicious. Plus, I knew the Pfizer MO because they have been doing this for years with other products such as Lipitor. But they, they never tested for to stop transmission. They never claimed it did. So the pivotal trial, which is what this was, the registrational trial, if you will, is the best single look that that drug or product will ever have because the company controls every aspect of the trial and the writing of the report. So if it doesn't pass muster on that first trial, you know it's a bust. And that was clear from the beginning. And subsequent analyses of the study done by Bart Klassen, first of all, and then uh, Peter Doshi for the British Medical Journal, showed that the number of serious adverse reactions were higher than those that were prevented by any effect of the vaccine in terms of decreasing hospitalization, let's say, or serious illness. So we knew from the beginning that this was uh, a disaster. They never improved all-cause mortality. There were more deaths in the placebo group they didn't start counting vaccinated until either 10 days or two weeks after the second shot. We've talked about this, which eliminated a bunch of adverse reactions that occurred after the first shot. And we know that that happens. We know that there are adverse reactions after the first shot. So the fact that they have not released the source data, have been forced to drip it out piecemeal, if you will, by the courts, they, were, they wanted to hold on to it forever, 75 years is an eternity, indicates that there were serious problems with the study. They did not meet any serious endpoints. And I can just imagine the, the mad conferences that were being uh, conducted in that company when those results came out. And then the government did the work for them. The government was the one that said that this is going to block transmission. Pfizer never, dis never said that. Well, I think at, at some point, I believe it was the CEO or president of Pfizer talking about transmission blocking being extremely effective. A vaccine that has been proven safe and efficacious. And also, I want to tell them that their decision, they need to understand, will not affect only their lives, which at the end of the day, it is their uh, judgment, but will affect the lives of others. Because if they don't vaccinate, they will become the weak link 
that will allow this virus to replicate. So it's almost like the propaganda, for lack of a better term, you know, everyone just sort of bought into it after a while, including the people that knew it wasn't true. Yeah, everybody played along with it who shouldn't have. Uh, the media, of course, ran with it, as they were told to. And that's, that's what we we're dealing with. Uh, but it was clear from the beginning, and I was tweeting about it, others were tweeting about it. But of course, all that stuff gets censored, and it doesn't really reach a wide audience. And two quick things. First of all, if you could just quickly clarify for me this difference between, you know, the professed 95% efficacy, you know, relative efficacy, and then 0.7% absolute benefit. Yeah, yeah, it's a mathematical operation. So if you look at the raw numbers of those who got infected versus those who didn't, or those who got serious infections, because the endpoint was also very soft. The endpoint was serious infection. Well, well, how do you really define that, right? So it's not a hard endpoint such as mortality, which is very easy to define. But the numbers who got their endpoint, when you compare the two groups, were really quite small because very few people got got sick, right? It was basically a healthy population that they studied. Very, very few people got sick, so the attack rate, if you will, of the virus was maybe one percent. So you can't really have an effect more than that in terms of the absolute risk reduction. But to give a more concrete example, look at Lipitor. Statin lowers cholesterol. Everybody thinks that this is a miracle drug. It lowers cholesterol and it prevents a cardiovascular death or heart attacks by 35 or 36 percent. If you look at the actual data, it's actually just 1 percent. So you have a group that has, let's say, 97 percent uh, did well, or a 3% rate of heart attacks. The other group had a 2% rate of heart attacks. That's a 1% absolute risk reduction. But it looks like 33% if you divide the 1 by 3. And that's how they manipulate data, and they do this all over the place in terms of pharma-sponsored pharma studies. And so basically, I mean, this maybe this is something for our viewers, we should always be looking for absolute risk reduction, not relative risk reduction, because the relative risk reduction could always look very large. That's right. Even though it, we're in an absolute terms, it's basically infinitesimal. Exactly. Why don't you give me your background and explain kind of your, your credentials, and then we'll talk a little bit about how you came to be involved in this sure. whole thing. Mm -hmm. Well, I always had a strong science interest, and I went to Stuyvesant High School in New York, which is, was and still is a very high-level, you know, science-oriented high school. Uh, one of the few that still has a pure merit system to get in, by the way. You pass the exam or you don't. It's nothing, else, nothing else matters. Uh, amazing that that has survived in New York under uh, de Blasio, who, who hated it. I went to Stuyvesant, St Stony Brook as a physics major for a year, then City College for pre-med. I ended up going to medical school in Belgium, where the, the science training was first rate. I mean, I had incredible scientist professors teach the basic sciences, uh, including a Nobel Prize laureate, Christian de Duve, who was a professor of biochemistry. And then went back to the States for my clinical training and did uh, internship residency in New York, New York Hospital, Queens, and fellowship in kidney disease nephrology at the University of Pennsylvania. Again, very strong science and clinical training. Uh, and I was a very solid scientist, and that was always my orientation. So I was always very skeptical of non-science stuff from going way back. And I saw non-science stuff infiltrate medicine over the years and ultimately destroy it. Okay. That huge... <laughs> I have to say, that's a big thing. You're saying medicine has been destroyed. I did read your book chapter in The Next Wave is Brave, this new book that's out that, you know, I, I'm actually seeing a lot of people are reading. Um, and I learned, frankly, a number of shocking things. And one of those is that something that I always thought was something that was very helpful to the medical sciences, evidence-based medicine, this whole approach, right, is actually what you're saying is the problem is actually what what created this opportunity for the destruction of medicine as it we knew knew it before but you know you're kind of said it with such finality medicine has been destroyed what do you mean well there were several elements one of the biggest and first was the loss of professional autonomy doctors 
lost control of their practices. They turned them over to corporations and large uh, insurance companies, if you will. They stopped being able to bill directly for their services. They gave that up. Many of them, not all, but most, gave it up. And therefore, they became uh, employees more than actual bosses of their own practice. Mm. And they had to then answer to their corporate or other bosses. And they couldn't really practice unfettered medicine the way they were trained to. That was a huge thing, the loss of professional autonomy. Then they lost their scientific roots, which is the evidence-based medicine story, and we'll get into that as well. But also, and even more important, they lost their ethical mooring. So medical ethics should be forever, but instead it became something that became, you know, changeable, fungible, with every new law and passing fancy and fad, and we are seeing the complete destruction of medical ethics, without which you don't have a profession. You may have a trade, but you don't have a profession. And that's why I say the medical profession has been destroyed, but for a handful, relative handful, of ethical science-based doctors out there. And that's what we are trying to recreate, if you will, with our new venture, the wellness company. One thing that we observed, I certainly observed during the pandemic, is that this quote-unquote guidance, which, you know, came out from the CDC or the FDA around use of drugs or around proper approaches to COVID in the community, effectively acted as edict, not guidance, right? Right, mm -hmm. right. So that is evidence-based medicine. And the what happened was evidence-based medicine got introduced, it became a fad, and then it sort of took over. What is evidence-based medicine? It was a construct by a couple of Canadian doctors who said, we have to introduce a hierarchical system to evaluate the best evidence and then incorporate that best evidence into medical practice. The problem is two things. One, who decides what's the best evidence? And evidence isn't science. Evidence is just something that we use in a scientific process that involves thought, deductive reasoning, conscious, uh, rational thought. So pure evidence can be found to support any hypothesis. And one of the examples I love is that, according to the so-called evidence, Paul McCartney's been dead since 1966. I don't know if you remember that whole scare, but it was, uh, you know, conspiracy theory that Paul died and he was substituted out. And, uh, 1966 was the date, and there was all these clues in their songs, and you played certain things backwards on the records, and you got clues. But that's the point. You can make up evidence or find evidence for any hypothesis. And that's not science. Science is where, you know, you think about things, and then you test things. And you cannot prove a scientific theory. You cannot prove a medication works. All you can do is prove that it doesn't work. So, okay, the advent of this evidence-based medicine approach, though, didn't, wouldn't it have the effect of kind of standardizing certain approaches and then maybe, you know, maybe there's doctors out there who aren't very good, who didn't learn very well, and it would, you know, force them to up their game. Like, that's how I imagined this would work, right? Well, the, the way it worked in reality is that the evidence base upon which these rules, the guidelines and the guidance were based was dominated by industry. Mm. So the pharmaceutical industry creates the study to push their drug. They, they write the report to push their, to market their drug. This has all been very well documented, by the way. I'm really not making any of this stuff up. You want to watch Lehman McHenry, who's a, an insider who talks about this. And I've seen it myself as sort of an insider for years, in my younger years as a doctor. And it is the, the database upon which these guidelines are based is corrupted. So you can't possibly use that as a way to practice medicine. So doctors, however, bought into it. It was very easy. Let's just follow the guidelines. I can really turn my brain off at that point and just do what they say I should do these experts, we, we give them all this authority. Virtually all of them, certainly the majority, are paid by industry, either as consultants, speakers, uh, researchers. They're getting money from industry that they are writing guidelines about. 
it's inherently corrupt. All of these guidelines should be thrown out. We should just ignore them all. And one of the things that I like to say is that if you want to be healthy, do the opposite of what the official recommendations are in terms of diet, sun, exercise, etc. Do the opposite and you will be healthy. Eat salt, eat fat. You're going to be much healthier than if you follow the dietary guidelines. Well, you, in, in your book chapter, you call it the crime of the 20th century, is yes. these eating guidelines that, frankly, all of us grew up with and assumed were appropriate. Right. So I grew up in the 50s and 60s before these guidelines were put out, which was the end of the 70s. Mm -hmm. And everybody was slim back in those days. The obese people stood out. Now, if you're slim, you stand out. So what changed? Well, our genetic makeup didn't change. No, the dietary guidelines came out and they pushed everybody to give up animal fat, go with these polyunsaturated, industrially produced vegetable oils like canola oil and soybean oil, because they took a lot of the healthy fat out of food. It didn't taste good anymore. So they amplified everything with sugar and high fructose corn syrup. And they created a very toxic food environment that is very hard to avoid. You know, if you go to a supermarket, 95% of what you see there is toxic. It's sugar-filled and canola oil-filled. You can't even find a pretzel that doesn't have canola oil anymore, except maybe one or two. So you, you have to work very hard to eat a healthy diet in America today. The vast majority don't, and they gain weight, and eventually they get the metabolic syndrome, type 2 diabetes, hypertension, and it's all diet-related for the most part. Mm also reversible, except the model that we have adopted now is to not reverse the disease, but to rather treat those diseases with pharmaceutical products, right? It's a, it's a fabulous business plan. Fascinating. Well, now, now I, I'm getting a little more insight into why uh, the keto diet that I like to, like to use actually works well, because it seems, it seems like it basically prevents you from eating a lot of these things that you describe as toxic, which feels like a strong word, actually. Like, just isn't unhealthy a more appropriate word? Um, well, toxic is real, but is, is accurate because these products produce disease. It's not like they are just, you know, not that good for you. They're actually bad for you. Mm. The uh, polyunsaturated fats, canola oil, high linoleic acid, canola oil and soybean oil uh, are pro-inflammatory. They lead to the metabolic syndrome and atherosclerosis. Sugar, which is half glucose, which is relatively less toxic, but the other half is fructose, which is highly toxic. As fructose is metabolized in the liver exclusively into mostly triglycerides, fat, which end up depositing in the liver, causes fatty liver, causes the metabolic syndrome, which is an insulin resistance, high insulin level state, which then doctors look at, ah, their sugar is high. We have to give them more insulin. No, their insulin is already very high. No, just take them off all the sugar. Stop the sugar, stop the carbs, and the insulin doesn't, it goes back down and you reverse the disease. If this were done, the national health would improve. And that is exactly what we're trying to do in the wellness company. We're trying to get people off medications and onto healthy eating patterns. As you're speaking, um it might be easy for us to forget, you know, how many years you spent, uh, you know, leading teams in major New York hospitals, treating kidney disease, and then that you were a professor and also, you know, a clinician, and, and I think you ended up in Granada. But as you exited, uh, it, I guess what you what you saw as overly corporate. Uh, practices in these in these New York hospitals. You know, typically the sorts of things you're talking about, people associate with "quote unquote" alternative medicine, but that's not your background. Not at all. I'm, no. As I said, I'm very science oriented, scientifically trained, and a very experienced clinician. Uh, Forty years of clinical experience and a lot of training. Really, ten years post medical school. I did internship, residency, fellowship, etc. So I started out a gung-ho prescriber of all these uh, drugs that I now feel are harmful. We had a great time practicing medicine back in the 90s in, in New York at Beth Israel Medical Center. It was a wonderful community hospital. Uh, we served a huge area, uh, saw everything, every kind of patient we saw. 
and we had a great collegial relationship with the private physicians. I was one of the full-time physicians. I d developed several programs that were innovative in dialysis in, in the hospital setting. I did clinical research. I presented at, pay at, at conferences around the world. One, at uh, one of these, I used to run into regularly Peter McCullough. He and I are old friends because his beat was the heart-kidney interaction, and my beat was the kidney-heart interaction. And we used to run into each other at these meetings. And we, we were friends. We were friends for a very long time, which is so interesting that we got to work together now. Pierre Corey I, is an old friend. He was the head of the ICU at Beth Israel when I was there as a full-time nephrologist. So we worked together for years as well. Yeah, so I have a lot of uh, strong scientific background. And I started out prescribing hypoglycemic drugs for diabetes, for example. And I, I just started to see, you know, these people are, are really not doing well. Their kidney disease is getting worse and worse. Eventually, they're going to be on dialysis. Why, what am I missing here? And then I realized that the guidance for type 2 diabetes was really cut and pasted from type 1 diabetes, which is a completely different disease, and that strictly controlling the sugar in type 2 diabetes was not the correct approach, and that, in fact, it was reversible by applying a low-carb, high-fat diet. And I remember reading for the first time the Atkins Diet Revolution book back in the early 2000s, and I said, you know, this makes a lot of sense. And I started to give this to patients with type 2 diabetes, and they were able to shed their medications and improve. So that really opened my eyes. Fascinating. So how, how do you, in terms of medication, how do you describe our medical system today in terms of use of medication? There's massive overprescribing, massive overprescribing, especially in the elderly where it is egregious because they are more sensitive to toxic effects of medications. Their, threat, their horizon for any benefit that is going to supposedly accrue over many years is very limited. So they're getting almost no benefit, if not zero benefit, and they're only getting side effects. So that's one population that should almost never get prescription drugs. The other is that what I said, we are treating a, mostly diseases of diet and lifestyle. And if you address the underlying causes, you can get rid of the medicines. So that is one of our strategies. It's been my strategy for many years. Rever reverse diabetes, reverse the metabolic syndrome, stop the insulin, stop the medications. Blood pressure, most high blood pressure is due to the metabolic syndrome. If you reverse the metabolic syndrome, you can taper and get rid of many of the high blood pressure pills that are being given. Uh, and this, er this applies to other areas, bone disease. Bone disease is common. What does it do to? Well, mostly we're not getting sun. We have very low vitamin D. Uh, we don't get vitamin K2, which is an absolutely essential vitamin that you can find in certain foods. And you're getting frail bones. The drugs that are being given actually weaken your bones. The bisphosphonate class of drugs weaken the bones and they cause these horrific uh, fractures of the femur that are devastating. So these drugs should not be given. They're toxic. You know, I, I, I think I have to say this on camera. You know, um, my background is in evolutionary biology, a lot of, a lot of experience uh, in science, learning science, applying it, um, molecular biology. And um, this is all the sorts of things that you're talking about are things that my mother used to tell me about. And I just sort of said, whatever, right? And I think this, the last few years of my life, it, it, mom was right. You know, that's what, and it, it, I mean, I think there's a whole suite of people, um, including everybody, I guess, that, that is part of the wellness company now, that, um, that either have come to these realizations or have been on the path to coming to these realizations. Um, here, here's my question, right? I remember my parents came from communist Poland um, in the 70s. One of the things that was common or was recommended, for example, by Vaclav Havel back in the day was that there's importance of creating parallel structures, uh, parallel to the communist structures, right, in order to be able to be ready for, you know, when the system changes as, an, as everyone believed it would maybe one day. And it strikes me that the wellness company is an attempt to do that against the current existing system. That's correct. 
The current system is so corrupt at this point that it is impossible to fix, in my view. We have to start from scratch and build something alongside as an alternative. Because if we try to fix what's wrong, you'll, we'll never finish. It's just so bad. We have to get all the corrupt influences out. And you can't do that. They're too entrenched. So let's just build our own system that will be free from industry influence. We're not going to have pharma telling us what drugs to practice, to, to give and when. We're not going to have guideline committees to tell doctors how to practice. We're going to re-instruct doctors to use real science to make clinical decisions. So for example, type 2 diabetes, perfect example. We know what causes type 2 diabetes. It's this very unhealthy diet. You change the diet, you reverse the type 2 diabetes. That's, that's real science-based medicine, not evidence-based medicine. The bone disease issue I, I spoke about, we know that the drugs that they use paralyze certain cells that reabsorb bone, which is an intimate part of bone remodeling. Bones remodel throughout life, which is how they maintain their strength. If you block bone remodeling, which these drugs all do, you weaken the bones. You don't have to do any studies to know that this is true, because we know the, the, bio, the biology. We know that cholesterol is a vital substance in the body. Every cell in the body knows, has the machinery to synthesize it, except certain brain cells. Well, why, why do we have this? We have this because we need it, because cholesterol is so vital. If you just know that, if you look at the biochemical pathway for cholesterol biosynthesis, and you see what is downstream of where we block the pathway, you'll see we're inhibiting the formation of a lot of vital substances. All the steroid hormones, uh, the sex hormones, cortisol, aldosterone, all come, vitamin D, all come from cholesterol. So why would we block this? You don't have to do any studies to know that this is a bad idea. It's a fundamentally flawed idea. And by the way, the studies show that the drugs really don't prevent uh, you from dying. They don't really extend life. Many doctors that have taken a approach that didn't fit with the so-called guidelines have either been threatened, have had their licenses suspended or lost their licenses, have been forced to leave hospitals. I mean, you yourself decided not to get vaccinated based on your professional opinion, right? And it basically left you without a job, right? Correct. Um, so how is how are you going to be able to overcome this in this new structure where, you know, medical boards still control, you know, who gets to have a license or not? Evidence, the acceptance of the concept of evidence-based medicine, that you could have a panel of experts decide what is true, must be contested. And that has to go to the Supreme Court, ultimately, to decide that no one really has a monopoly on the truth. That's what it all comes from. If we reject this notion that there are these experts who can decide the truth, then you can do what you want to do. And that is the essence of Hippocratic medicine. You do, you practice for the benefit of your patient according to your best judgment and ability. You do not follow the guidelines, right? There's not, not, not a word about guidelines in the Hippocratic Oath. It's all about taking care of your patient, training others, you know, passing on the knowledge, et cetera. Not harming, don't, don't do abortion. That is in the Hippocratic Oath, right? That's, the Hippocratic Oath is a succinct statement of medical ethics, which we have lost. Right? We are harming patients routinely, abortion, uh, euthanasia, right? This is all unethical, castrating adolescent um, boys and girls for this gender-affirming nonsense. This is all highly unethical. It should stop immediately. I'm calling out doctors doing this stuff. I think you're unethical. I think you should resign. They should not be doing this stuff. It's very bad, very harmful. So we've lost that. And we've given up authority to central bodies of so-called experts, all of whom have agendas. The entire process is bought and paid for. If we don't take back our authority as physicians, it's all over. And we have to have this affirmed at the highest court, because otherwise it will never end. Doctors have to be free to practice what they consider to be good medicine. 
They cannot be told how to practice. They cannot be told in California what they can't discuss, what they can discuss or not discuss with patients. No, there has to be free and open communication. You have to be able to give informed consent. That is another vital part of medical ethics. If you can't tell a patient what the risks and benefits are of a given procedure, honestly, you can't really practice real medicine. Mm. You become an agent of the state. And I hope the Supreme Court has a moment of clarity and says, no, you cannot assign a group to determine scientific truth. Then we're, then we're back to the pre-Galileo era. So you describe uh, performing abortion as being unethical. Um, but surely if the mother's life is at risk, this would be a different question? Well, there are virtually no real indications where that is the case. Because you can almost always, especially now, uh, deliver the baby, right? If the pregnancy is constituting a risk to the, to the mother, it's going to show up in the, one of the later trimesters, at which point you can deliver the baby either by C-section or, or vaginal delivery. Uh, the gynecologists have literature on this, and it's not just the life of the mother, it's the health of the mother. And the health of the mother can be very loosely defined as emotional health, etc. So it was a huge loophole through which they drove trucks. Uh, but truly, it is an un unethical practice to end a human life that is innocent. And th this is being done on a massive scale. And the medical profession should have stood up and said, no, this was my point, is that the medical profession has a duty to society that comes from their ethics to defend individual patients from harm. And if the government comes out with something or there's some law about something or some new fad that is harming patients, the medical profession needs to stand up and say no. And that is where we failed. The whole COVID pandemic response was unethical. It was unmoored from science and it was unethical. We should have all stood up as a profession and said, no, we cannot do this. We cannot shut down the economy. We cannot close schools, keep the kids in school. Masks are horrible. They, they are harmful. They're not just that they don't work, they're harmful. They're causing disease. We should have just stood up as a group and said, no, we cannot go along with this. We're out. You want to do this? It's on you. We're not, we're not going to endorse it. They didn't. Doctors did not, except for a handful, and we know them well. Okay, they are heroes. McCullough, Zelenko, Didier Raoult, Brian Tyson. These are heroes who stood up and they bucked the trend. They bucked the tide. But most went along, and that was a huge failing of the profession. Again, the loss of ethics, the loss of autonomy. They were dependent on a paycheck. Right? They didn't have their patient base to support them, and they caved. They caved. You know, one thing that strikes me, and I've said this on a number of programs, is if, if there ever was a perfect model or perfect evidence showing you why kind of governance by expert class or, or decision-making or guidance by expert bodies doesn't work, it's what's happened over the last two years. Exactly. Exactly. It's always wrong. Always wrong. That's why I say go the other way, right? Just go the opposite direction and you'll do better. Uh, you have much more wisdom and the crowd has much more wisdom than any group of experts possibly could have. And they're all uh, being paid off in one way or another. They're either getting recognition, fame, status, money. Uh, you cannot rely on any of these recommendations. This includes, by the way, the FDA and the CDC the NIH, they're all on the take. The FDA, since 92, has a large part of their budget coming from industry, right? The, the Pharmacy Drug User Fee Act, right? Industry pays for their drugs to be evaluated. That's a slight conflict of interest. So you can't trust the FDA. It's supposed to be watching over these industries and, and making sure that they're producing good quality products that are safe and effective. They're not. They're not. Another good reason, by the way, to deprescribe because you just cannot trust that the drugs are safe. You know, you said, you know, following the crowd. I, I, I always, my uh, antenna kind of comes up when I hear following the crowd. I don't like hearing follow the crowd. But I think you're talking about scenarios like where anecdotally you saw in Granada 
I think you write in your book that most people were simply, I'm, no, there's no way I'm getting vaccinated. Like, I think you say 90% of people you encountered would, would, would have that position, yet your university chose to basically force these uh, things. Right, right. It's very, very disappointing. And, you know, I argued strenuously for them not to. Uh, I told them, look, you don't really have an issue here. You have zero COVID on the island. You have a, there's a good island quarantine policy. When you come in, you have to be tested, et cetera. There was zero COVID for over a year. Every place that rolled out in a big way, the shots had saw surges of cases. This was during the Delta era, by the way. And that is exactly what they brought in. They, they allowed the quarantine procedures to slip a little bit because they were overconfident in these shots. And someone obviously came in with Delta, started a big epidemic. And from uh, like one death over two years, they went to 200 dead. This was not a small thing. So the policy had a horrific effect in Grenada. But from what I understand, right, having these kind of quarantine policies actually just kind of prevented the, the, the time that the pandemic would actually hit, right? So to speak, because that's what happened in Australia. That's and what New happened Zealand. in New Zealand. That's right. That's so right. You, you, there's sort of no running away from it, except perhaps you know you, you maybe you escape some of the more troublesome variants at the beginning, right? Right, and then you also are running the risk of the vaccine adverse events, the shot adverse events taking a toll, mm -hmm. which I'm certain they did. Uh, for no benefit, because they don't really prevent transmission, as everyone now admits, right? But it was obvious from the beginning that they didn't work in that way. And it's obvious that they were never going to work. Sushirat Bhakti said this, Mike Yeadon, others. You're giving a shot that's producing antibodies in the blood. The virus comes in through the eyes and the nose and the mouth. Those antibodies are not going to get up there. You have a totally different system based on IgA antibodies. And so these blood antibodies, to the extent that they might be effective, don't even get there. So it can't possibly block transmission. And this was obvious from the very beginning. Yeah. I, when I first learned about this, right, that basically the place where the virus is stopped is with, you know, this different part of your immune system in your, in your nose, essentially, right? Uh, and whereas the vaccine is being administered in, directly into the blood, and by the time it actually, the virus does get into the blood, that's actually, you know, that's a serious, because usually it's stopped up here. Right. Just, it's just such a bizarre concept to me that, that, this, that, that this wouldn't have been considered. Not only that, yeah. but it was also known that the spike protein is the most problematic part of the virus. That's the part that binds to the ACE2 receptor and creates the platelet activation, blood clotting, irritates the blood vessels, et cetera, creates all the toxic effects of the shot. Essentially it creates protein. the COVID disease. Yes, yeah. yes. And yet all of the uh, manufacturers chose this protein to make. Uh, this is also flawed reasoning. Mm -hmm. the, the whole mRNA and, and DNA vaccine uh, model was flawed from the beginning because it was producing this toxic protein. I just want to clarify something. So, you know, when we were speaking earlier, you said that right at the very beginning from the data, you could tell that uh, the efficacy wasn't going to be good. But the data that we got from Pfizer really only came out after Aaron Siri's lawsuit, which basically forced the revelation of this data earlier this year. Um, so what was available at the beginning that provided that information to you? Well, the very low absolute risk reduction was there from the beginning. That was clear for everybody to see. The fact that the endpoint was so soft that, uh, you know, you could sort of, fun, uh, you know, f it was very fungible. You could create uh, an endpoint that was easy to manipulate. And the, then, worst thing, they obliterated their placebo group after a couple of months. Mm. So you could never really have a comparison in a randomized group of patients, of individuals over time to see what was truly uh, adverse reaction and what was not. Uh, that was uh, research malpractice, really. And the study, I believe, is fraudulent. That's why they don't want to show it. It's very reminiscent. And Peter Doshi has spoken about this, too. By the way, editor of the British Medical Journal, a very smart guy. 
back in the uh, 2000s, the Tamiflu scandal, Tamiflu oseltamivir, an antiviral that was supposedly going to be the savior for influenza. And the British government was spending 20 or 40 million, million pounds or billion pounds, I forget, on buying stockpiles of this. Mm -hmm. And some wiser heads said, well, maybe not so fast. And they asked the company to provide the source data for the drug, and they refused. It took three years of litigation to drag it out of them, at which time they discovered that the drug really did not work as advertised and, and had some toxicity that they downplayed. And that is par for the course. This is how these companies operate. So that's, that was my impression from the very beginning, uh, that the drugs were not really effective, nor were they probably safe. So in layman's terms, what does obliterating the placebo group actually mean? You unblind the study. You see who's getting the shot, who's getting placebo, and you offer the shot to the placebo group, most of whom took it. And, you know, why might you do that? Well, the reason that they gave was, was that their results were so outstanding that it would have been unethical to deny this placebo group the benefits of this shot, this miracle shot. The reason they really did it was to disguise long-term side effects. That's my view. Because if you take out a placebo group, then you can't say this group really did better over two or three years. In terms but, of side effects, yes. for example, yes. Yes. Well, let's talk about placebo a little bit. Yeah. Okay, because again, reading your book chapter in Brave, um, I, I found myself thinking a lot about placebo. And, you know, this is something my wife often says. Uh, we, we've talked about this for years, actually. You know, placebo, it's so fascinating, right? You, can, you don't test against nothing, no intervention, you test against placebo because placebo, which is typically saline or some, some, something that doesn't actually interact with the body much, um, being administered, and that actually has an effect. I mean, that, that is astounding. So this is in my wife's words, this is astounding, this is amazing, this is what we should be studying, right? It's so, so what's true. What's your reaction? <laughs> it's so true. Much of what doctors do for patients is based on placebo effect. I mean, I guess this is, we should have a spoiler alert on this, but, but it's true. And, it, and just knowing that doesn't diminish it. What happens between a doctor and a patient in a way is somewhat magical. And it occurs, as I wrote in the essay, Zen and the Art of Health Maintenance, it occurs at the interface between doctor and patient, i.e. the patient-physician relationship. That is where the magic occurs. And the magic is that the patient comes to a doctor with a complaint. The doctor shows that he is concerned and is going to care for the patient and is going to apply his training, knowledge, and force of personality to heal that patient. The patient immediately feels better. And I have throughout my career had patients tell me that they feel better just after talking with me for 15 or 20 minutes. I haven't done anything. Maybe I've examined them, okay, I've laid hands on, but I haven't given them a pill. I haven't made any real recommendation. I haven't done anything. Nothing physical actually occurred, but they feel better. Why is that? It's because of this massive placebo effect that we have. And no one talks about this in medical school, but this is the essence of the interaction between patient and physician. And this is where healing really occurs. And something I will add is that I've had this discussion with Peter McCullough. It almost doesn't matter what early COVID treatment you give. So we've talked about hydroxychloroquine. We've talked about ivermectin. I believe these drugs have value, but other drugs work. What really matters is that you, the doctor, are standing between the patient and the disease. That is what really makes the difference. The actual treatment is not that important. It's you caring for the patient and standing in the breach saying, I'm gonna fight this with you. The patient's anxiety level, which was sky high, immediately drops. You could measure this if you wanted to. And they start to feel better and that is the beginning of healing. So the actual recommendations and the actual drugs given matter less than that interaction. I mean, that's absolutely fascinating. But of course, presumably you're giving uh, drugs that have some sort of effect, right? I mean, sure. frankly, there's one I was 
talk talk about often is fluvoxamine, which actually underwent this, you know, sort of this gold standard double blind RCT trial, but still isn't used very much, strangely, even though it has it's been shown to be efficacious. Same same is true with colchicine, the anti-gout drug, okay, also effective in these studies. But all of these repurposed drugs were censored. And it was obvious why, right? Every, everybody knows this. It was so that they could get the emergency use authorization for the shots and for other drugs that were patented, such as molnupiravir and Paxlovid, both of which are very toxic and barely work. So they could get the EUA for remdesivir, which is highly toxic, puts them into kidney failure, doesn't work, never worked. So yeah, these repurposed drugs, ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, are effective. They are. Let me add something about the shots in terms of kids. The kids we know have almost no morbidity and mortality from the disease. To force these shots into kids, again, it's unethical. Okay, it has nothing to do, the science isn't there, okay? But it's also unethical because you're subjecting them to risk of serious harm for zero benefit. And that calculation must be done for everything that we do in medicine, risk versus benefit. If there's no benefit, you cannot tolerate any risk. So the, the administration of these shots to young healthy people and kids in particular is egregious breach of medical ethics, should stop immediately. Because the absolute benefit is so infinitesimally small. Correct. I'm convinced based on the papers I've read, the evidence I've seen, the various doctors doing the actual treatment that I've spoken to, that these drugs, these early treatment repurposed drugs work. And there's a range of them now. We've, we've mentioned maybe four. There's, I think there's about 20 of them now. Yeah. Um, the idea that we somehow didn't really try at scale or really use them, I mean, it seems like it cost a lot of lives. It's a massive crime. It's a massive crime. Millions of lives probably could have been saved with early treatment. The, the fact that they did, it wasn't tried, they discouraged it. They made it almost impossible to do. The guidance, the so-called guidance, they, they made hydroxychloroquine, which is one of the oldest and safest drugs out there, into a demon that was gonna cause all these heart arrhythmias and kill people was based on a couple of fraudulent studies. But that became the official narrative and it scared doctors away from using a perfectly safe drug, which is effective. And if I recall correctly, yeah. um, the dosing in one of these studies was at toxic levels, ones that you know nobody would ever, no doctor would ever prescribe, which is bizarre. Right, uh, this has been written about, Peter Bregan covered this in his great book. Yeah, this Bra Brazilian study, they gave patients a toxic dose, literally, of hydroxychloroquine. And, and this was a group of patients who were at the end of their rope, who had a very zero chance, in my view, of responding well to the drug in the first place. So they set up this study to fail, to make the drug look bad. And this is the problem, again, with so-called evidence-based medicine, that you can create a trial to show what you want to show. It's not objective at all. So to give these randomized trials credence, no, you have to actually read the trial and see how they did it. Mm. And few doctors do this. And also, you know, you mentioned education. So as this ed the education system has become corporatized, so to speak, right? I was reading uh, Dr. Joe Latipo's book, uh, new book recently. Um, the most, the fascinating thing in there for me was this. He talks about how vaccines are taught in medical school with yes. a certain kind of reverence. It's something yes. a very different way even all these than all these other drugs, right? To the point where, you know, you, he described it as a kind of indoctrination, that they're, you know, sort of panacea, that they're not harmful, just inherently. And so I've been wondering what you would think, how much of that type of education with doctors might have played into them accepting that vaccines as a solution as opposed to trying other things. Absolutely. And I read the book too. I thought it was great. And I, I highlighted that section as well. Yes, the vaccine mythology, if you will, is ingrained in medical education. I saw it firsthand when I was teaching uh, clinical diagnosis down in St. George's in Grenada. 
I saw that virtually they never omitted the standard question, are your vaccinations up to date? That was, if you didn't ask that question, somehow they felt that God would punish them if they didn't ask that question to every single patient. It literally contributed nothing to the medical history of the patient for their complaint that they were presenting with, but that was ingrained into them. And yes, to criticize any of the vaccines now is verboten. You are an anti-vaxxer. But the truth is every medical product should be looked at in the same way. What is the benefit and what is the risk? And if your risk from getting a disease is minuscule, you don't need the shots. And you, they don't really eradicate the disease. The disease is always going to be there. These viral diseases are always going to be there. So it is a, it is a myth, and we should be more objective and science-oriented in terms of our acceptance of these shots. And look at the uh, toxicity, right? What is the risk? If you don't know the risk, don't give it. You know, given everything I've learned about these genetic vaccines and their side effects, there's, you know, pages and pages of them. Um, and also, frankly, about side effects of other vaccines from the past, more conventional ones, which are, you know, presumably for the purposes of the noble lie covered up. That's maybe that that's the most charitable explanation. Given everything that I've learned, it might actually make sense to get that vaccine history. Don't you think? Oh, yeah. In terms of the side effects, absolutely. And look, uh, I'll defer to RFK Jr. on this, who I think has been you know, pretty courageous about taking on that industry. Uh, they are not uh, studied well, right? The, the, the long-term toxicity is not studied well. The, uh, they have no indemnity liability, right? They, they are covered for any sort of bad outcome. So where's the incentive for them to do even routine quality control? I don't trust them. I don't. One of the side effects, <laughs> I'll use that term, um, of everything that's happened during the COVID pandemic, the policy approaches, you know, doctors doing or not doing the thing they, they needed to do, has been a lot more vaccine skepticism. Yeah, I'm skeptical about everything. I inherently now distrust most of my colleagues. Sorry to say. Uh, some I do trust. That's one of the reasons why I knew, for example, that ivermectin worked, because my old colleague, Pierre Corey, who I know to be a straight-up guy without an agenda, was saying that it worked, and he saw it work. So I knew that it worked in a very real way. But most doctors who are in the pharma m mode and who are just following the guidelines, I think they do more harm than good, frankly. Well, this is a terrible state of affairs. That's a very, obviously, a very, very strong thing to say, right? I would guess some of your former colleagues or former colleagues would be very unhappy for you to create, say, this sort of, you know, grand indictment of most people and, you know, of most doctors. Is this really fair to say people need doctors and there's I a know. lot of doctors out there? That's, that's why we're doing the company. I mean, we also need to do a new medical school or many new medical schools to teach ethical, science-based medicine, the way it used to be. Uh, the current medical education is horrible. All the woke stuff is in there now, critical race theory, multiple genders, all this stuff, uh, you know, gender affirmation, surgery. It's awful, it's unethical, it's unscientific. We need to have a new medical school, and that's one of our long-term goals. And I'm recruiting professors, so my colleagues out there who are interested in this, just contact me. I would guess there's a lot of doctors out there who maybe went along, maybe are unhappy they went along, um, but see some of, at least some of the problems that you describe. What is your advice to them? Get independent, okay? You cannot practice ethical medicine as an employee of a corporation be it a hospital company or even the insurance industry. If you're taking insurance payment from a, a company for, on behalf of a patient, that's an inherent conflict of interest and it's gonna compromise your ability to give correct and good care. Go independent, establish a cash-based practice. It's not that hard, thousands of people are doing it. 
I just came back from the AAPS meeting where we had you know, panels on this, how, how to start your own direct pay practice. It's not that hard and you will be happier and you'll be able to practice good quality medicine. That's the most important step. Be fiscally, financially independent with your own patient base. And then go back to the basics. I call it medicine by first principles. It's going back to the basic sciences to guide your clinical practice. And I gave you a few examples with type 2 diabetes, bone disease, etc. cetera. Uh, you can apply this across the board and you will find the remedies that you come up with are very different from the pill for every ill approach of big pharma. And you will then start to actually heal patients and you'll heal patients by taking them off toxic food, toxic drugs, giving them emotional support by your presence, by your, your active participation in their campaign to get healthy and well again. That is the key to good medical practice. It is not being taught in the current medical school paradigm. What about if you're a doctor that, you know, you know, let's say early on you accepted the guidance, right? Um, maybe you weren't thinking as clearly as you wanted to be, and you realize that now. Maybe you misled your, your you, you believe you misled your patients, or you're beginning to believe that maybe you did, right? As more and more of evidence, this evidence comes out. What do you, what would you say to folks like that? It's never too late to change, right? You have to start by rejecting that whole approach. It, it leads ultimately to one-size-fits-all medicine, which cannot possibly be good because we're all different. You saw that with the, uh, the mass uh, inoculation program. No one was concerned about any uh, clinical issues that might have qualified someone to not get the shot. They were pushing it on pregnant women, women who wanted to be pregnant, lactating mothers. We know now this is a big issue. Kids who had zero risk for, for serious disease. There were no clinical considerations taken into account. It was one size fits all, or as Peter McCullough says, a needle in every arm. That's not good medicine. How could it possibly be? So what would you say to your patients right. if you found yourself in this kind of situation? So we want patients to come to us and see what we are offering in terms of how to get them off drugs, how to, get, how to restore their health. The majority of the population, which I witness when I travel, you know, is metabolically unhealthy. You look at the big waistlines and you realize that these folks have very likely metabolic syndrome, which means that they're in, in line for type 2 diabetes, hypertension, cardiovascular disease, to name a few. Come to us, we'll tell you how to reverse that and get healthy again. If you're stuck with a primary care doctor, and many are, right? We don't want to steal patients away from doctors who are you know, honestly trying to do a good job, but ask them if they're getting prescribed a drug, let's say. Ask them, what disease is this for? Number one, what is my risk from this disease of serious outcome? Am I going to die from it? Am I going to be in the hospital? Am I going to lose my leg, etc.? And then what is the effect of this drug? How much does this drug reduce that risk? And not in relative terms, in absolute terms. And what are the side effects? And what are my chances of getting a serious side effect? You ask those four questions to your primary physician. Number one, they probably won't be able to answer. <laughs> Number two, if they can answer honestly, it will discourage you in most cases from taking the medicine. Most of these drugs don't work as advertised. They have very bad long-term effects. Long-term effects are ignored. They're not even studied. Live well, eat well. Don't avoid salt. You need salt. Salt is a stuff of life. We're being told to limit salt. We need salt. Without salt, your blood pressure drops and you collapse and you die, right? You have to eat salt and a lot of it. Uh, maybe the board's going to take me up, right? I'll, I'll lose my board certification for going against the, the grain, but you have to take it with a grain of salt. I will happily defend this against anybody, and if any of my colleagues, present or former, would like to take me on in a debate, name the time and place, I will be there, but you better be ready. And now, um, on the other side of the equation, as we finish up, right, for those doctors that think they may have 
misled their patients because they weren't they weren't in clear mind. There was this huge societal push. Maybe they did, they didn't want to be you know outside of the crowd. Whatever reason, I just think there might be a lot of people who out there who are wish to be ethical people and help their patients and maybe made some poor decisions in the past and now are looking for a way through this right without losing their careers sure. um, what what should they do they turn over a new leaf edu get educated and start from scratch in doing the right thing I'll, I'll refer you to two very fine physicians David Unwin from the UK uh, he's low carb GP on Twitter if you want to find him he had a moment of clarity because he was seeing his type 2 diabetes patients go down the, go down the drain literally and he was very frustrated with it when finally a patient came to him and said you know I got rid of my insulin and I cured my diabetes by going on the Atkins diet and why didn't you recommend this Dr. Unwin and he said he felt so bad that it completely changed his practice. And from that point on, he did recommend that diet. And he's got hundreds now of diabetes reversal cases in his practice from that one moment. Tim Noakes, Professor Tim Noakes, brilliant doctor, former marathon runner, who was the originator of the carbohydrate loading, South African, by the way, carbohydrate loading idea that you need to you know, eat pasta, pasta, pasta all the time. Well, he himself developed type 2 diabetes from following his own carbohydrate loading advice. And then he read the Atkins diet book one day, and that turned his life around. So, you know, we all make mistakes. I've made a ton of mistakes. Start from scratch. Reinvent yourself. You know, your body reinvents itself all the time. Every cell in your body is turning over. Not, maybe not some of the nerve cells, muscle cells, but they are, you, it's turning over all the time. You're constantly renewing your body which is why it's important to eat well, because what you eat is what ends up you know, building your, your cells. So you can rebuild your practice, you can rebuild your body, uh, you can be healthy, your patients can be healthy, they'll need a lot less drugs, the pharmaceutical industry does not want us to succeed. I can tell you that right now. They're probably gonna do everything they can to stop us from being successful. But if we get enough patients and we get enough doctors with us, we'll be successful. This is, what, this is what's needed. Well, Dr. Richard Ammerling, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you, Jan. Great to be with you. Thank you all for joining Dr. Richard Ammerling and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Janja Kellek. Mm -hmm.